you have your copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn to the book of Philemon with me this morning, or as you might know it, Philemon or Philemon, however you choose to say it. If you don't have a Bible, you will find one under one of the chairs in front of you, and you will find our text for this morning on page 1000. The book of Philemon. In 1798, a clergyman in England by the name of Granville Sharp wrote a book called this, Remarks on the Uses of the Definite Article in the Greek Text of the New Testament, containing many proofs of the divinity of Christ from passages which are wrongly translated in the common English version. Now, from that very wordy title and from that rather small book comes an important set of rules for Greek grammar and how we are to read the New Testament. And I'm sure that many of you will be out searching online and in antique bookstores looking for a copy of that this afternoon. (laughs) Nevertheless, for the rest of you, you may be more interested to know that Sharp was also a part of the Clapham sect of England, which worked for the abolition of slavery in England alongside men like William Wilberforce. And one of the reasons for his belief that slavery should be abolished was found in the letter that we're going to look at this morning, the letter of Paul to Philemon. The context of the letter involves roles and relationships of slaves and masters and how that is affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was an important letter for Sharp and the abolitionist movement, but it was also an important letter for the church in Paul's day not least of which because of the prominence of slavery itself. Slavery was in fact so prominent in the Roman Empire that when this letter was written, it is estimated that no less than one-fourth of all Romans were slaves. 25% of every single person in the Roman Empire was in slavery. So what do you need to know about slavery in the first century, the slavery in Paul's day? Most importantly, you need to know this, it is not like the slavery that we have in our own, we had in our own country during the 17th century. In fact, most English translations now avoid using the word slave, even though Paul uses it very often in his letters because of the negative connotations it has with the history of our own day. Here are some of the differences between first century slavery uh, and modern slavery. First, it wasn't based on ethnicity. It wasn't some people group that was viewed as being somehow inferior and so were enslaved. You could be from any ethnic background and still be a slave. Second, slaves were educated. In fact, some slaves were very well educated. Some slaves were specifically kept on as household doctors. You were employed in that way. Third, slaves, again, following from that, were paid for their work. They earned a wage and were provided food and shelter by their masters. More than that, the fourth difference is that slaves could actually hold property and be in charge of the money that they earned. They actually had, in today's terms, a manageable portfolio that could actually be inherited by their descendants. Finally, slavery slavery was not permanent. If one was born into slavery, it was often possible to earn enough money to buy one's freedom by the age of 30. It's a very different atmosphere in which slavery was uh, conducted between the first century and uh, and the uh, previous modern age that is a part of our own history. Nevertheless, slavery in the first century wasn't all that great. 
A slavery still had, a slave still had limited rights and freedoms. Furthermore, he was often viewed simply as property of the master in the eyes of the law, so that if someone abused your slave, the penalty was the same as if they had come and trashed your house or your cattle. But it was really bad if you ran away. You could be tortured. You could be branded like an animal, uh, a mark left burned into your flesh, indicating that you had at one time been a fugitive, even crucifixion we read from history, was allowed as a punishment for running away as a slave. And this is what brings us to our text this morning. For in the letter we're about to look at, the Apostle Paul is writing to his friend and fellow Christian about his runaway slave. So follow along as I read the letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what, I, what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Though many others are mentioned in this letter from Paul, it ultimately comes down to the relationship of two people in terms of the thrust and the, the, the reason for its writing, the relationship of Philemon and his slave Onesimus, a master and slave and how that relationship should be affected by the gospel. And what flows out of that instruction, what flows out of that situation has implications for our life and our relationships today. And that's what we want to see, how the gospel should transform us and transform our, transform our relationships. We want to see this in three parts this morning. So first, we want to see very simply that Christ transforms our lives. Christ transforms our lives. 
As we figure out the situation, or at least attempt to, the best of our ability, uh, reconstruct historically what is going on, uh, it appears uh, that what we have here is uh, one of the Christians in Colossae, a man named Philemon, was a godly man, and he did much work for the gospel. Verse 7 says, I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So here is the people of God finding, their, finding themselves built up, encouraged, spiritually refreshed through this man, Philemon. More than that, from Paul's words in verse 2, it seems that he hosted a church in his home that met each week. Now all of this tells us not just something of the character of the man, but also his position in society. He was better off financially than most. If he was able to have a house big enough for people to gather into every week to provide uh, for them, act as host, he might have even been what we call wealthy. In fact, we know he had enough to support it, paying at least for one slave, Onesimus. And it's at the beginning of the story, Onesimus was in some way the very opposite of Philemon. Here is a man who is not wealthy. Here is a man who has no independence. He's a slave. Moreover, he has no spiritual independence, for originally, as he's working for Philemon, Onesimus is without Christ. Therefore, he is, as Paul would say elsewhere, a slave to his sin, held captive to his own ungodliness. Perhaps this is also why he wasn't a particularly good slave. Notice what Paul says about Onesimus in verse 11, that he was useless. How would you like to have that be the thing that you're known for? This man is useless. Perhaps you've seen someone like that. Uh, Perhaps it was the restaurant worker who brought you your food, and before you could tell them, hey, this is the wrong order, boom, they're gone. And so everyone else has their food, and so you go ahead and uh, hopefully pray for the food, thank God for and begin to eat, and you're waiting, thinking they're going to come back in a minute and check on us. Uh, and, and I'll tell them, this is, the, this is the wrong thing, it's not what I ordered, but they never come back. And so you realize, I'm not going to get anything to eat here for lunch. If I don't do something, you start eating this food that you're really not particularly fond of. And more than that, they never come back, and you never get the refill to wash down this food you didn't even want in the first place. And it's not as if the restaurant's busy. There's open tables everywhere. And so the best that you can imagine is this this girl is in the back texting her friends or making out with a cook or something. Something is going on by which she is uh, being negligent in her duties. And you say, boy, wasn't that person useless? Well, perhaps it's another situation in which you find yourself. But you just think that person is inept at their job. They're not doing it well. And we have to ask ourselves, what is the situation in which... This is, the, this is the, the case for Onesimus. In what way is his useless? You know, that was frustrating perhaps in whatever the situation was for you to experience someone's ineptness at their occupation. Imagine what it's like for the boss. Imagine what it's like for a slave owner to hold a slave who is useless to them. Was he lazy? Was he inept? He just didn't know how to go about doing his tasks? Maybe he was a thief and simply could not be trusted. And so Philemon was having to look over his shoulder every minute of the day. It appears that Onesimus did steal at least once, perhaps even doubly so. You see, Onesimus ran away from Philemon. Perhaps he was on a business trip. Perhaps he was, uh, just uh, ran off in the middle of the night. We don't know. Uh, perhaps he ran off with some goods or with a sum of money because in verse 18 Paul says he's willing to pay back to Philemon whatever Onesimus lost to him, whatever debt he owes to them. We cannot know the details with certainty, but this we know from Paul. At one time Onesimus was a useless slave to Philemon, but then something changed. 
Onesimus was on the run, having fled in the midst of a high crime in the Roman Empire. He's trying to stay low and not attract attention. We can imagine how would this man have survived. Often we know from history, runaway slaves would have fell into robbers and thieves. They would have became uh, one of a band of criminals to try and eke out their living. They would have tried to, to hide out on the fringes of society and not draw too much attention to themselves. What is he doing for food? Where is he sleeping? Is he always trying to avoid the, the Roman police that would have been uh, going through the cities, not wanting to be found and sent back and punished? It would have been, frankly, a miserable, nerve-wracking existence. And yet, and yet in the providence of God, he meets Paul. And how did this happen? Paul is in house arrest himself the equivalent of being in prison at a home. And yet somehow, somehow in the province of God, Onesimus finds Paul. And Paul wastes no time giving him the details of the gospel and leading him to Christ. In his mercy, God grants Onesimus life and faith and he becomes a Christian. The man who so desperately wanted freedom, God gives something far greater. Real, lasting, spiritual freedom from sin in Christ. His new Lord and Master. And it's here that Christ begins to change Onesimus. Paul says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. That is, he became a Christian under Paul's ministry. And then he says to Philemon, formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed he is useful to you and to me. All of this is ironic because Onesimus' very name means useful. So here is a man who was at one time useless to his master, and yet in hearing the gospel and encountering the living Christ, the supreme master, his life has changed. And now in Christ, Onesimus is finally able to live up to his name. He has become useful. And not just working as a slave. It's not as if his, his character simply changed and he became useful. He's become useful, Paul says, in his work. That is, the work of spreading the gospel, advancing the kingdom of Christ. And what Christ did for Onesimus, he does for all of his people. He transforms their life. He gives spiritual freedom and moves you from death to life, making you a new creation. In the process, He not only forgives you of your sins, but He brings you into His kingdom and makes you useful for His kingdom work. So none of Christ's people, none of you here today who, who have been saved, who experienced the new birth through God's Spirit, hearing the gospel can say, I am useless for God. No. A fundamental change has occurred by which God now says, you are valuable to me and to my kingdom work. But more than that, God also transforms our character. So suppose someone is like Onesimus. Suppose perhaps they simply hate work. Perhaps they often find ways to cheat the system and get paid more for doing little. Or suppose someone is a thief. Suppose they lie about their taxes. Or frankly, they're just not a nice person to be around. They're, they're grumpy, they, they grumble, they're, they're hard-edged, and you just think, what, what an unpleasant person to be around. When Christ comes in, He not only brings forgiveness, but He brings about spiritual change. Christ begins cleaning house, even when it comes to your character. He takes one who acts like the world in all its depravity, and He turns you into a servant of Christ in His church. 
God's, transfor God's transforming work begins with our own lives and character, but it doesn't just stop there. We see from the letter that Christ also transforms our relationships and responsibilities. This is the second thing we want to see this morning, that Christ transforms our relationships and responsibilities. And Christ Onesimus became useful, especially to Paul. Yet Paul believes it is right to send him back to Philemon, his legal master. Listen to what he says in verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." Paul has obviously grown fond of Onesimus. He says in sending him back to Colossae, it's like sending his own heart back to Colossae. He's not only been useful, but he is worthy of the affection and friendship of the apostle himself. And in fact, this was not a one-way relationship. It was reciprocated. For Onesimus has shown love and concern for Paul himself. In fact, Paul says such was the love and the care that Onesimus shown to me, he says, Philemon, as if you yourself were here, loving me and caring for me. Now, Paul is explaining all of this to Philemon because he wants him to know the facts about Onesimus before he comes back. Think about it. Here is a guy who has, uh, who has run away. He, he is your servant. You, 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 you don't just pay him. He's not just your worker. You own him. And yet he has fled, perhaps with a large sum of your money. And so now you're not only out the worker, you're also out whatever he stole. Even if he returns, do you think you would be all that happy to see him? Probably not. And yet, Paul says you need to know the man who is coming back is not the same man who left. He says, look, I'm sending him back to you. You are his rightful legal master, but you need to know he's coming back a changed man. He's not the same useless slave you once had. He is now useful to you, just as he was to me. But more than that, he's not just a slave. He is now your brother. He is now your brother in Christ. Paul says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul says maybe it was the providence of God that moved him even in his sin to flee that he might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that something that seemed terrible to you turned out for good both for you and for me in the end. Onesimus had been found by Christ and his life has changed. He has helped me in my imprisonment still conduct ministry. And now what you're getting is not just the same old useless slave. You're getting a new, changed, transformed brother. Now again, why is Paul telling Philemon all this? Does he just want him to rejoice when Onesimus returns? No, I think it's more than that. I think that he wants him to think through the nature of the change in their relationship. Notice what Paul says at verse 8. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you from my child Onesimus. So if you would consider me, verse 17, your partner, receive him as you would receive me. 
Paul says, I could have said, this is what you need to do. I'm an apostle. This is what is right, Philemon. Do it. But he says, I don't want to do that. I want you to think about the change that was brought about in this man by the gospel. I want you to think through the implications of the fact that this man is no longer just your slave. He is now your brother. And notice the example that Paul sets. He says in verses 18 and 19, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Now stop and think about that for a minute. How long has he known Onesimus? Weeks? Months? Doubtfully, he's kept him away from his master for a whole year. And yet, look at the lengths he is willing to go to see reconciliation. Full, gospel-saturated reconciliation between these two men. He is willing to pay for any amount of loss Philemon has suffered, either by Onesimus stealing directly from him or by simply having one less slave to do work for him. Think about that. I mean, is the, is the apostle, you know, forget what you hear on religious television. Was the Apostle Paul a rich man? The answer is no. No. And yet he says, I am willing to work overtime. I am willing to make tent after tent after tent after tent. I myself, now even an old man who shouldn't have to do this, I am willing to pay back the debt he owes you. I am willing to sacrifice more than is even rational to see reconciliation take place and brothers in Christ live in harmony. He goes even more explicit in putting godly pressure on Philemon to follow his example. He says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. In other words, normally he quotes to somebody else, an amanuensis, a secretary, and they're writing down what Paul says. In fact, in one of the letters, you actually have Paul saying, and say hi to so-and-so, and say hi to so-and-so, and say hi to so-and-so. And the amanuensis actually writes in, and I, the secretary, say hi as well. And then it goes right back to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty funny, in my opinion anyway. And yet well, he says, okay, he says, st- stop writing. And here Paul, this big, apparently chicken scratch, or perhaps it's because in his old age you can't see very well anymore. But he says, look at this, my own handwriting, this huge letters that you know is unmistakably mine. This is important, Philemon. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. He says, remember, Philemon, remember, you owe your life with God to me. Perhaps, in fact, most logically, it was with Epaphras, you remember, in Ephesus, who heard the gospel, went back and planted the church at Colossae. It's very likely that Philemon was with Epaphras in that, at that meeting, at that time, at that trip to Ephesus where he heard the gospel from Paul. And Paul says, remember, your life with God came through me. He goes on, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul says, give an old man some encouragement by doing the right thing. Minister to me by making the godly decision here towards Onesimus. And then frankly, Paul, I don't think in an ungodly way, but in a way few of us would dare do, leans heavily on Philemon. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Paul is saying, I know you, Philemon. You are a good and godly man. I know. I know what you'll do. In fact, I know you will go even above and beyond in receiving Onesimus back. You will follow my example and you will go beyond it in serving God and His church. Now, many scholars believe that Paul is all but asking Philemon to forgive the debt 
that, that Onesimus accrued with him. But some yet think Paul is going even farther and implying that Philemon should simply release Onesimus from his slavery. We cannot, sure, we cannot know for sure, but one day, one day we will as we stand with all three in the new heaven and the new earth, worshiping the Lord Jesus forever. But until then, what we need to know for ourselves is this. The gospel transforms our responsibilities and our relationships as well. Paul's not just writing to these individuals saying the gospel needs to be at work in your life. He is writing by implication to say this is the example for all Christians. The gospel transforms our relationships and our responsibilities and not even just in our immediate lives and family. He's calling us to something bigger. A life lived completely under the lordship of Christ. Therefore, every relationship you have is meant to be affected by the gospel. So we can begin with the obvious. How do you think about and how do you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ, the people in this very church? That's a question we have to ask. How has the gospel transformed my relationship to them? Hopefully in some very profound ways. But let's go beyond just the obvious. Let's go to the point of uncomfortability, okay? How do you treat the waitress who drops the Coke in your lap or brings you a burn steak? How do you treat the neighbor whose dog always does his business in your lawn? How do you treat the coworker who slags off work and you get stuck doing more? How do you treat the guy grabbing the carts in the parking lot of the grocery store or the guy cleaning the bathroom there? You see, because everything, as we heard earlier in Scripture and in song, is under the Lordship of Christ. It means every single relationship that we have, whether it is a casual, I see this person once in my life and I never see them again relationship, or this person has been permanently bonded to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ and they worship with me every Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night relationship. All of it must be affected by the gospel. As we can see from this letter, a major way that we're changed in our own character is the way that we relate to other people. And the question comes down to this. As we relate to anyone, as our first thought how deep the Father's love that He displayed grace and mercy and saved someone like me. Was well, our first thought is, I don't deserve this treatment. That's the difference. That's the difference in living a gospel-centered life and a self-centered life, steeped in sin and, frankly, rebellion at the Lordship of Christ. In October 1989, Eric Honecker was deposed as the ruler of East Germany. He was not only a hated man, but he was a sick man. He had malfunctioning kidneys, he had a body riddled with cancer, and he needed medical attention. Yet he and his wife, Margot, were forced to leave the official residence immediately, and no one was willing to take them in. They were homeless. They had devoted their lives to the Communist Party, and now the party had turned their back on them, and no one would help them. In fact, the only person to offer to take them in was a Lutheran pastor named Yule Homer. He and his wife had suffered under Honecker's regime because of their Christian faith. Their children had been denied higher education under the very policies that Margot Honecker had established as Minister of Education. His telephone had been routinely tapped for years, his mail monitored, and his family followed in the streets. But the homers understood that their Lord and Master had commanded them to love their enemies. And so on January 31st, 1990, they took the Honeckers in. The public was outraged. 
Crowds gathered outside their house to protest. The telephone began to ring incessantly. Hate mail flooded their box. Bomb threats were received. And all the while, even the police said, we cannot guarantee your safety. Read that as, or hear that as, we will not guarantee your safety. At one point, Pastor Homer wrote a letter to be published in the paper to explain why he and his wife had taken in such a hated people a people who themselves had abused the pastor and his wife. Here's what he said, quote, It has become clear to us in a new way that to forgive is not an easy thing. Injustice is a reality. And the remembrance of it grows easily in our hearts, turning to bitterness and dividing us from one another. In light of that, God's forgiveness becomes even greater to me. It was not easy for him to forgive either. His holiness demanded fair justice and punishment for our sins. To make forgiveness possible, he laid our sins and our punishment on Jesus, his son. Only then was the path to forgiveness cleared. Forgiveness is granted to everyone who asks for it, every single person. In recent days, it has become apparent to me in a new way how much it costs God to forgive my sins. We want to live by Christ's example. Loved ones, Christ transforms our lives. Christ transforms our relationships and our responsibilities. And finally, Christ transforms through our community. Christ transforms through our community. Who was the letter written to? If you thought Philemon, you were half right. Listen closely to the opening. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It comes from two people, Paul and Timothy, and it's two lots of people, Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, likely Philemon's wife and son, and then finally, the whole church that meets in their house. Now, Paul is writing what many of us would say is a private matter. This is between Philemon and Onesimus. It's between master and slave, employer and employee. What business of it is anyone, of it is anyone else? And yet, apparently, Paul says it's the business of a lot of people. Because he writes this letter likely as a writer with the letter to the whole church at Colossae. So when they receive the letter, they say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. Wait, there's two of them. And they look at them both, and they read the letter to the Colossae. And then they begin to read the letter to Philemon. But Philemon doesn't just take it in the back room and read it. No, it is written to him, but in the context of which it should be read to the entire church. In other words, Paul says, this matter is not just going to be addressed between me and you about him. It is going to be addressed to you from me about him so the whole church can hear it and read it. Paul thinks the issue should come in the context of the community. And remember, this isn't just Paul writing. This is Scripture. So God thinks this matter should be dealt with in the context of the community. The question is, why does God ordain our community to be involved with our transformation? Why isn't that other people, on occasion, should hear about our sins? And that our correction should be open and public. It's at least two reasons. First of all, sin loves the dark. Sin loves the dark. You are far more likely to commit sin when you're off by, your else, by yourself somewhere rather than the company of others. Furthermore, think about the ways you respond in guilt when your secret sin is found out. And one person has said it's when we're confronted by our secret sin that we become the most irrational. 
We are ready to fight. We're ready to argue. We're, we're ready to, to lose friends and make all kinds of irrational statements when the light of God's holiness reveals the darkness of the sins we hide in our heart. Community brings accountability. But more than that, God ordains to use our community to bring about transformation because we need encouragement from others. We need encouragement from others. We need more than just accountability. Just holding the negative consequences, the, sp- the prospect of those things, is not enough to keep us from sin. We also need positive encouragement, people that will help us and point us again and again to Christ. Down in the trenches, in the ditches of everyday life, we need people there with us to help us remember the grace of God. And this is why God not only puts us in community to aid in the process of our sanctification, whereby our lives are increasingly transformed to become holy, even as God himself is holy. This is why when Paul writes to Philemon, he doesn't just do it in secret. He writes to him in such a way that the whole church is brought into it. Here's a man who was a leader in the church, both by service and by example. And Paul wants the church to see the transforming work of Christ among his people firsthand. He wants the congregation to hear about the change in Onesimus and sit back wondering, what is Philemon going to do? I mean, can, I mean, can you imagine if something like this took place in the modern day church? Can you imagine the, the amazing amount of awkward tension that would be in the air? If, if perhaps uh, the Apostle Paul was alive and, and he wrote to me and he said, from, from Paul and Timothy to John and Melinda and Joshua, Rebecca, David, and baby number four, and, and, the, and the church that you shepherd and even the small group that meets in your house, grace and peace to you. Now, you need to understand there's some problems with your life and I want to address them. And people will be like going... You know, people would have their texting, you're not going to believe what just came today, you know. And yet this is what, this is the very thing Paul does. Why? Because he wants people to sit back in awe and wonder and say, what is going to happen? And what they're going to see is the gospel at work. He wants them to see and learn from Philemon's example. Paul, in fact, himself desires to come, he says, to be encouraged and refreshed by what he longs to see, Onesimus return and find himself accepted without penalty, more than that, as a brother in Christ. And so Paul himself, he puts himself in the context and he basically says, I want to see you because I love you, but more than that, I want to see what happened. And so he writes in verse 22, At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Friends, let me just simply say this. You wonder why we read that church covenant every time we have a members meeting, why we ask you to sign a covenant membership when you join that says you will be involved in other people's lives, they will be involved in your lives, it should be driven by the gospel and by love. It's because this. Despite what the song says, no man is a rock. No man is an island. We are called to be God's people, plural. We are all bricks in the, in the, in the church that he is building. We are all parts of one body and therefore our lives are meant to be lived out together in community. And that is good for us. Because that is the way in which we are held back from sin and we are spurred on to godliness. So do not shirk away from that. Do not shrink back from us saying, let someone else be involved in your life. That is God's plan 
out of love to see your redemption blossom into more than just forgiveness, but godliness. So how did it all end? What became of Philemon and his response to this letter? Well, surely I think we have to say at the very least it was a positive response. Otherwise, why do we have the letter? Right? I mean, can you imagine Philemon getting, getting mad and being mean to Ones? What would he do with that letter? He'd probably burn it. I mean, he wouldn't want that thing. And yet here it is, not just that we have it preserved, it is actually right here in the Bible. It's canon. It's scripture. So surely a positive response came from that letter. But, but can we say, can we say anything else? Do we know what the rest of the story is, as it were? We cannot say with certainty, but church tradition does give us a possible end of the story. Many years after this, about 50 to be precise, a man who studied under the apostle John named Ignatius served in the church at Antioch as a bishop, as a pastor. And on his way to Rome as a prisoner to face execution as a Christian martyr, he wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus. And he wrote that letter because he himself was so encouraged that their elderly pastor, when he heard that he was being taken to Rome for execution, he came to encourage him and to see him. Ignatius described that pastor as, quote, a man of inexpressible love. And he said that he prayed the Ephesians would love him and that they would, quote, seek to be like him. What was the name of that pastor? Onesimus. Is it possible that this man who was once useless as a slave and worse a runaway not only found redemption in Christ but true fellowship with his master and the church? Is it possible this man became so useful to Christ that he became a loved and loving pastor? We can't say for sure. One day we'll know. But for now, we can say with certainty, Christ is able to transform lives. Heavenly Father, that is our desire even this morning. That through the reading and the hearing, the proclaiming of your word, that God, you would transform our lives through Christ Jesus, our Savior, our Master. Father, it's a surprising and sometimes shocking thing that though we are called sons of God, Paul regularly calls himself a slave to Christ. Father, even the implication of saying Jesus is Lord is saying he is our master and we are his slaves. Father, I pray that we would delight in that servitude because we know that Christ is the good shepherd, that he desires to care for us and protect us and watch over us. Even now he makes intercession for us and that, Father, you are crafting us into his very image through our sanctification. God, I pray that in the hearing of this letter that you will cause us to reflect on our relationships, God, both those with our spouse, with our family, with our extended family, with our church family. God, help us even today as we go out into the world, perhaps stopping for lunch, perhaps filling up at the gas station. God, every life that we touch, help us to view it through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God, it is by grace that we have been saved through faith not anything that we have done. Therefore, how much more should we show grace and kindness and love and mercy towards others? Father, we ask all these things in the name of Christ might go forth with power in this city and even to the very ends of the earth that many might turn to Him in saving faith. Amen.